I want to just briefly mention. Uh, the book of Philippians up to thus far has really been concerned with us understanding and finding joy in life. That's, you know, you can cut it whatever way you want to cut it. But the bottom line is, uh, Paul is essentially saying throughout this whole book, we can have joy no matter what happens in our lives. And so I want to pick up that theme today by beginning to look at the, the practical applications of what joy actually does look like in our life. In other words, we've, get, we've got this concept a lot, and we have certainly looked at some pretty particular applications of it. But the back end of the book of Philippians really does begin to address like the stuff we need to be doing in order to ensure uh, that we can be a joyous and joyful people. And so the book is pretty well balanced in helping us to understand God's role in our lives and our roles in our lives in faith. And so I want to share with you a story. I, I actually shared this a few years ago uh, because I think it is perhaps the best story that kind of hits at what I'm talking about here. Um, I, I had been invited upon moving to Florida shortly after anyways, a really good friend of mine that lived in the area who was also a pastor, said, hey, you know, it's been a while. Let's go ahead and get lunch together. And he's, he's known, well known for shenanigans. I've known him for a very long time. But I showed up to the restaurant that I was supposed to have lunch with him at. And when I sat down at the table, it wasn't just he and I. There were five other uh, men whom I'd never seen before in my life. And so I kind of asked what was going on here. And it turned out that he had invited um, some other people from his staff, five other pastors. And so it was great. I thought, hey, we'll get to know a bunch of new people today. And um, as we began to talk, one of these men stood out above all the others, and not necessarily in, in, a, in a good way. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, naturally, it was midweek. We were all beginning to talk about what our weekend gatherings were going to look like. And so my buddy asked me what I was teaching on that Sunday. And I told him, this is the, you know, the early days of restoration. I told him what I was teaching on. And it was a passage that had a lot of different uh, interpretations, meaning people were pretty split on where, where they landed with it. So he, because he knew that, he began asking me some questions about how I was going to handle a certain phrase in that passage because there were so many differing views on it. And I began to share with him the conclusion I came to based on a, a tool I had been given in, in seminary, uh, which is called word studies. And essentially, it's a, it's a tool where you can take certain phrases in the scripture and through a, an understanding of the language, in this case it was Greek, you begin to look at the ways this word is used in multiple contexts. And it helps you to get a better understanding of what the Bible writer is actually trying to say to us. That's a very big value for us, is to us to be able to understand and articulate clearly and with confidence and truthfulness what the Bible is saying. And so I began sharing this process with them. They were asking questions about what I had done. And I, I told them that, and I could see there was like one guy chomping at the bit uh, to interrupt. I mean, it's pretty common. I talk with a lot of people a lot, and this guy was waiting to in, interrupt, and eventually he did. Uh, he kind of stopped me at one point, and he, he proceeded to tell me, he introduced himself, like officially, beyond the name. He had said, listen, uh, you know, I've been a uh, director of men's discipleship for a very, very long time. Apparently, this was this dude's role. And he said that he, uh, he wanted to level a concern with me, and I was thinking, like, man, I haven't even ordered, like, a tea yet, and you're already, like, leveling concerns with me, but nonetheless, I, I obliged. And he went on to say that he was deeply concerned that uh, that my love, he used that word for the Greek language, was causing me to miss out on really uh, loving Jesus. Uh, and then he went on in a very rapid fire manner. Uh, he started asking me a bunch of these like really personal questions. He wanted to know like how I read the Bible and did I pray and like was I praying with my family? I mean, it was like a, a litany of these things. And the questions themselves are not bad questions. They're actually very good questions. In fact, they're questions I ask people all the time. But what was different about this was the aggressiveness. I mean, it was sort of like, uh, you know, you, you threw a, a hungry dog a piece of meat. 
So after answering many of the questions, uh, it didn't take long to pick up on the subtext of what was happening. In fact, I sort of felt it from the very beginning. He was implying that uh, because I was using my head to deal with a serious issue in Christianity, uh, at least in part I was using my head here, it meant that I, I wasn't loving Jesus with my heart. Now, I want to I say this because this is a concern that can actually be very true. And in fact, I've taught on it in our church gatherings multiple times. Whenever we talk about the understand of, understanding of knowledge, I'm very clear to point out that knowledge in Scripture is much more than just acquiring or accumulating information. Knowledge actually at some point has to shape life experience. Otherwise, we don't truly know. And I, I've given lots of examples here, but the short story here is that if we can say, you know, um, we, we love Jesus or we've read something about Jesus, for example, he tells us we should be burdened for our neighbor or we should have a deep level of love and care for those of us who are brothers and sisters in Jesus. If we read that and say we know that, but yet we don't actually have that rhythm in our life, it really begins to call into question whether or not you know, you know that. Like, for example, if I were to say, you need to look before you cross the street, otherwise you might get hit by a car, and you say, I know that, but then you constantly run into the street without looking, it calls into question whether or not you really know that, right? The severity of, of the absence of that rhythm in your life is a potential problem. Uh, in one case, it means missing out on a significant rhythm of what it means to follow Jesus. Or in these physical examples, you, you, know, you might get hit by a car. And so this can be a real issue. And that actually wasn't the issue I had with the dialogue. Um, the issue I had was that he just assumed this was the case with me, like six minutes into having lunch with him. And so about 10 minutes in of being badgered, and that's what it turned into, I really got tired of it. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, man, like, how long have we known each other? And he said, well, this is like the first time we, we had lunch. We just met. And I said, so what that means is you we've not known each other long enough for you to ask me these kinds of questions anymore like bada bing we got to shut this down right it was over and uh i literally said everything to him but bada bing and i wish i would have said that because it would have been a much cooler story right now but it was funny the demeanor of the table changed uh everybody got quiet for a moment and then uh two of the guys just started laughing and it became clear to me this this probably happened on a pretty regular basis in fact my buddy corroborated this afterwards that his stick if you will was this kind of like you know, driving into people. Uh, and there was a, a certain pleasure at the table for pushback. So here's the point I'm making here. For, for some in Christianity, this, this kind of attitude is, is what they have come to believe helping somebody grow in the faith is. It's a, it's a rigid proclamation of truth, right? Which is not, not, not irrelevant, meaning part of the Christian faith is the proclamation of truth. There are things that, that God actually says are right things that need to happen in our lives. But in, in this kind of mindset, what happens is there's little, if any, love for the person you're trying to proclaim uh, the truth to. And so there is this rigid holding of a person's feet to a fire to try to make them more like Jesus. And it becomes somewhat problematic if, if we ever overstep our boundaries and how we grow in Christ, which is what we're going to talk about today. What starts to happen is we'll begin to put our, our confidences in things that that might be about the kingdom of God, but are not necessarily rooted in the kingdom of God. And this day, I really felt like this guy had a great confidence in himself to address an issue in my life, at least a perceived issue at that point, um, that, that he thought needed to be dealt with. He, as opposed to maybe recognizing the nature and the role of the Holy Spirit in this, in this, this pedigree. This is a confidence issue. And I have a really good friend in Philadelphia who said this to me years ago. I, I was just sharing with him some stuff in places where I was frustrated. And he had just said to me something that it, ch it changed. I don't want to say it changed the perspective, but it brought a different level of knowing to what I'm talking about right now, like I mentioned a moment ago. He said, listen, um, if you want to have peace in your pastorate, if you want to have peace in your own life, he said, no, that the greatest disciple maker on earth is not you. 
um, it is the Holy Spirit. It is him that is the greatest discipler. And there's something great about caring and attempting to build up ourselves in Jesus and, and to disciple others. But recognizing fully that there's a major role, a driving role that God's Holy Spirit plays in this process. And to separate the two leads us into faulty expressions of faith. Another thing, I'll just be very brief here because there is a, a, a minimal connection. I say minimal meaning, I'm not going to talk about it a lot. But it's, it's minimal meaning, um, minimal in, in the time I'll spend on it, but maximum and it's important. Is that involved in this relationship, this, this dialogue I had was a lack of any real relationship. Uh, it really came across to me as a, accountability with like no brotherhood. Like I didn't know the person. And I want to say that I'm also not knocking the idea of, of us being in each other's lives. For example, um, in the context of this room, uh, if any of you had ever asked me those questions or in our community groups or personal relationships, those are questions that I would actually say in Jesus, we're obliged to answer for each other. We, we've committed to be a group of people who want to know Jesus more deeply. And so these types of questions actually have a very important place in the body of Jesus. It's just that we should be as concerned uh, with the nature of the person we're speaking to than we are just kind of beating them over the head with some kind of an idea. Both of these things are imperative, that, they, that there is a genuine love as you proclaim truth or challenge it in the lives of the people you're talking to. But that wasn't the case this day, that day. And so today we're going to look at how we can grow in Jesus by, by putting our confidence in his Holy Spirit. That's essentially what Paul tells us. And I actually, had a, it's not essentially, it is exactly what he tells us. And I had another verse that I wanted to share with you this morning, but for time's sake, I omitted it. But I want to introduce the spirit of the verse. Uh, in Philippians 3, 3 through 4, Paul says this. In Romans 8, Paul also says this. He, he in a much more pointed way, tells us, you know, do not put your confidence in your flesh. Uh, he says, put it in God's Holy Spirit. And, and in both of these places, he's talking about how things get done in God's kingdom, in our own lives and in the world. And so we're at this place in Philippians where we want to make sure we're beginning to put into place all the stuff Paul has talked about. We don't just want to dream about joy in our lives and not have any on a Wednesday. We're at the place where what we've been learning about God, what we are learning about God, knowing about God, should be shaping who we are and what we do for God. And so today, Paul is very concerned with the subject of sanctification. It's a big fancy word for saying how we become more like Jesus, how we grow in our love for following Jesus in all areas of our lives. And doing so enables us to experience that unassailable joy he's talked about. The preface of this, which we won't touch on today because we've touched on it multiple times earlier, is he says, you know, I say it again, like, guys, consider joy. Like, it's joy to do these things. So joy drives the rhythms of our life. Joy should drive the rhythms of how we pursue Jesus, and it should create in us a, an unassailable joy, meaning it's a joy that is no longer uh, dictated by circumstance. It's an inner peace, an inner joy that drives the circumstance. We look at things differently because we know the joy of Jesus is in us, and it cannot be taken from us. So let's jump right in and spend some time talking about how we can put this practice into place in our own life. The first and foundational truth that Paul gives us here in this, this third chapter of Philippians is a, it's a very obvious one. I'm just going to reiterate what he says. He tells us that a person who is putting their confidence in the spirit will desire to put the flesh to death in their heart. So what he's saying is, is one of the ways you have joy is by knowing you, you have a, a great advocate called the Holy Spirit who loves you and cares for you. And if you will put your confidence in him for your own life, I'm not saying we neglect our own lives, but if you put your ultimate confidence in him, you need to know that God has sent him to you so that he will help you to become in Jesus what you are not yet in Jesus. Philippians 3, 3 through 4, Paul says this, I'll reread it. For it is we who are the circumcision. That's an old world way of describing God's people. That's a sermon for another day. But the bottom line is that's a reference to the people who are serving and trying to pursue God. 
He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That's exactly what he says in Romans. He's just a little more poetic here. We serve God by the spirit, we put our boasting and pride in Jesus, and at, at the result of this is that we put no confidence in the flesh. We know our role in the economy of God. Though, he goes on to say, I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, we've touched on this list earlier, so I won't beat it to death, but I'm telling you, that little statement is a powerful one because he goes on to list the greatness in his own life. This is a guy who in every way did everything he wanted to do in life. He was uh, amazing and unrivaled in anything, whether it was academic knowledge, philosophical knowledge, his vigor for Old Testament Judaism, his kind of pharisaical tendencies, whatever he did, he was the best at it. And so here you have a guy saying, Listen, if there's anybody on earth that has the, the reasoning to say, put your confidence in me. I, I put my confidence in me because I'm awesome. And he was truly awesome. He says, listen, if anybody can do it, it's me. But I'm telling you that I can't even do that anymore. Because I've, I've learned to recognize and embrace a different type of awesomeness. And it is in my Savior Jesus. And so Paul tells us one of the main ways we can experience joy is by putting to death the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a new man because he has less confidence in himself and more confidence in his Savior, which somewhat ironically brings about an unassailable confidence in your life too. It's just a humble confidence, a right confidence, a, a righteous confidence. And so this is really an interesting teaching found throughout the New Testament because on, on one hand, Paul tells every Christian we're commanded with our own hands in both places. There's this idea of, of us acting upon something, of us recognizing that we need to stop doing something and start doing something. On one hand, he tells every Christian, we are commanded to put to death the flesh. And all that means is we're to no longer live according to our own ways or ways contrary to the life Jesus calls us to. But on the other hand, he tells us, the ability to actually put to death the flesh or sin can only be accomplished by relying on the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so this verse really captures the heart of how we grow into a more fully formed faith in Jesus Christ. Of how we take all these beautiful gospel truths we read about each week, study each week, and how we make them a reality in our lives throughout the week. Paul tells us growing in Jesus as a disciple, it happens when we find the healthy balance of investing in our faith, of, I like to use this word, of, of fighting with all our might against the deeds of the flesh, recognizing in God's discernment when they raise up, recognizing the things that want to pull us away from God and what will hurt other peoples, resisting that stuff, but also fully relying on and resting in the power of the Holy Spirit to actually accomplish that noble goal in our lives. It's kind of like you have to do it, but you also don't have to do it. And there's somewhat of a a spiritual paradox there, but one that actually has a, a very practical application for our lives. That's what I want to talk about now. He gives us two important truths in this verse about how to do just that. And I want to take some time to explain and illustrate them. So first, what we learn here is when, when we try to figure out the balance, if you will, between um, how we invest in our own faith, but also recognize Jesus is the ultimate author, his Holy Spirit is the ultimate finisher of our faith. The first is this, is as we seek to grow out of the ways of the flesh and into a, a deeper love for life in Jesus, we have to know that the authority and power to do this really has nothing to do with you and I. In other words, the ultimate authority in this, in any change in life or any ability to, to put to death the flesh, to, to be less like us and more like Jesus, ultimately rests in the, the power and the authority of our God. Paul is implying here, but he's explicit in other areas, that the deeds of the flesh or sin, that's a word we don't like to use today, but it's a word that is certainly connected to flesh, they have ultimately and eternally been put to death by Jesus on the cross. 
In other words, what he's saying is, when you think about how to overcome things in your life that are difficult, when you think about growing in places in your faith that you maybe don't even know how you can do that right now, you have to first get out of your own head and say, more than me, more, more than me wanting to see me be something different. God loves me enough to say, I'm an advocate for you to help you become what you don't even know how to be yet. That's what I mean by the onus of that is on God. Jesus already dealt with this issue of uh, the power of sin, the deeds of the flesh on the cross. And at this very moment, he is still doing it in our hearts. If you are in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit rests in you. It's not even like you have to figure out how to contact him. He is in you. God's given you a 24-7, never-ending advocate that is present in you to help you become this. And that is why we didn't do it today, although our song certainly had these themes. There are some Sundays when we sing songs like Jesus Paid It All. The idea behind these words affirm that in the war of the flesh, in the war of the sin, it's already been won. Jesus dealt with that permanently and forever. Now that said, we all regularly still fight battles with the flesh. So when we say Jesus paid it all, that doesn't mean that we are never going to struggle with this stuff again. It just means that the ultimate power that the flesh and the sin have over us is no longer an ultimate power. He is an ultimate power over it. But it puts us into this unique place um, where we are, and I, I've kind of poached this line, it's been written by many people, but I think N.T. Wright, who's a pretty prevalent New Testament scholar, says it best. The Christian on earth is between two worlds. We are already, but not yet. Already perfect and completed in Jesus, but not yet fully perfect and completed in Jesus. Right? We still wrestle with these things that one day when we're with God in heaven, we'll be already and already. There's no more, but not yet. But until this, that day comes, we still have to figure out how to honor God in places where Sin has been killed on the cross, but it still wants to wreak havoc in our lives. Some of our battles with this are skirmishes. Others feel like full-blown assaults. And this is because the root of all sin, even though it was dealt with by Jesus, the effects of it can still daily wreak havoc in our lives, especially if we cede defeat to them and just let them rule us. So that's the first thing we learn here is ultimately God does this. Secondly, we learn something important. We learn that in the power of the Spirit, we're commanded to make a disciplined attempt to put to death the flesh in our own lives. So it's like God gives you the power, and now he wants wants you to exercise it. We're told that even though Jesus did it all, we still have this major responsibility in how we come to grow in Jesus as his disciples. Even though God ultimately creates change in our hearts, we're we're responsible for for tilling. This is a term I use a lot, but for tilling the the nutrient-rich gospel soil in our lives that God wants to grow himself in. We're called to structure our lives in a way that, that minimizes the deeds of the flesh and maximizes the deeds of the Spirit. We're called to do things like be in community with each other, knowing God's word with each other, being on mission and helping others experience this stuff. We don't just like, you know, say God has done it all and then hope it works out one day. He then gives us some really practical tools that help us to to press more deeply into these ideas. We're called to restructure, reorient our lives around this command, this teaching. It's like he's saying, and this is why I say it's it's sort of a paradox, but a paradox with real meat and application. It's like you should desire to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We should want that only because we know Jesus has already done it for us. And when we recognize that this mattered so much to Jesus that he died for it, it should start mattering to us in the same way. And in that case, God works through us as we then work this stuff out. We work our salvation out with fear and trembling. Spent a month on that. It's another great example of Paul connecting these ideas. So, since we're studying Paul, and he's been pretty thematic in this book, let's turn to his life for a few minutes to see how he lived this truth out. Let's look at the practical application of this. Because Paul was a man deeply aware of God's grace in his life, yet he still had this laser-like focus on pursuing Jesus. He disciplined his whole life to know his righteousness. 
to grow in his grace, to experience the power of his resurrection, he tells us, by participating in his mission and even suffering for it. This is a guy whose receptors for Jesus are, are all lit up. And so let's look at how he describes this pursuit, right? When we talk about our responsibility. In Philippians, he uses this language of running races. He says, you know, I'm pressing on, I'm fighting the fight, I'm straining forward. He uses this imagery of a person who has disciplined their whole life for the sole purpose of running the race of following Jesus. He, he recognizes what Jesus has done for him, but he's now disciplining his life in light of that. And so Paul's life shows us genuine discipleship, the genuine pursuit of Jesus, genuinely putting your confidence in the Spirit, is always marked by a disciplined desire to intimately know and pursue Jesus. It is marked by a life... That has been overtaken by God. I don't have a better sentence for this. And that's why I use it like 10 times a year. The reality of truly loving Jesus. Means that our lives have been overtaken by our father in heaven. Now that doesn't happen overnight. But it means that should be the driving goal. That should be the, the metaphorical finish line we see in our, in our minds. As we f- follow Jesus. It is a life that has been reoriented around the ways of God. The Christian faith. The pursuit of Christ is not a hobby or a quest. Paul tells us himself it's not a a quest for knowledge and doctrine. He basically says, I've done all these things, but it's much, much more than that. It is a complete rewiring of your life. It's a daily fight to see your life and your world, not in the ways that we normally see them, but in the ways that God sees them. Think about that. And every day in our lives, we're looking at stuff and making decisions. And the pursuit of Jesus basically means when we look at our children, our families, our finances, our friends, our church body, whatever it is, our vocations, we are called to view those things in the way that God sees those things. And that's when we begin to live like Jesus in our lives. It is striving in the power of the Spirit to lay aside sin and become more Jesus, uh, become more like Jesus. It's a noble pursuit that we attain in part in this life. There is no Christian idealism in what I'm saying right now. With the best intentions, we will never fully be what we are being challenged to be here. When Jesus comes again, then he'll complete that piece of the puzzle for us. But we are challenged to, for, to embrace the pursuit to attain in part this in life, in full upon Jesus' return. Already, but not yet. And so a really good way of understanding this, this idea of putting to death the flesh with your own hands, uh, but also recognizing that you actually can't do that, your hands need to be indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to think about what happens when there is a fire in a house. There are two stages in, in a house fire, at least two main ones, okay? Um, and I, I, I actually did have a house fire once in, in my family. It's a long story here, but I set my parents' kitchen on fire in New Smyrna, uh, totally true story i was cooking clam strips which are one of my favorite vices in life and uh i had a friend over i was like 20 i don't even remember what i was doing home but i was cooking my parents were not home and uh he was in the back of my house and he had called me to come see him and i broke the cardinal rule of cooking i cooked for years in kitchens you never leave the stove ever you could turn around your perfect fish in a pan is then like on fire 30 seconds later so anyways i had walked away and uh when i came back the whole kitchen was on fire it was literally like that I'll give you that detail and uh, that story in full in another day. But it was, cr- it was crazy, like, how quickly that, that went down. And so I say, somewhat from experience, two stages in a house fire. Um, the house fire, actually, we, we managed totally stupidly. We put that thing out by ourselves. Uh, I mean, it was the dumbest thing I'd ever done in my life, and it's only a miracle that I'm still here. But anyone who's ever seen a house fire would agree. You can't, put it, you can't really put it out on your own. There was a, it was controlled at one point into a section of my kitchen. But it was evident in our minds that it was a matter of moments before that thing spread everywhere else, and we were going to have to run. 
that's why we have you know people in our cultures and our societies called firefighters. This is a significant thing, and we, it requires highly trained people. You know, talking about putting putting confidence in yourself. Like when you're 20, you think you could do anything, right? Including put out house fires. But then you realize, like, no, these dudes train constantly. These men and women are constantly working to figure out how to put out fires well. So firefighters have a very specialized job they do. They use specialized equipment. They have specialized training. They have a plan of attack to deal with that. That's why there is a fire department. The problem truly is too big for us to handle alone. In fact, at the very inception of America, the, the, it was, a, it was a, uh, a communal thing, but fire was such a detrimental thing that communities basically got together to put them out together. There is a big issue with fire. It's a good way to think about this now spiritually. Uh, it's a good way to think about how Jesus ultimately puts sin to death in your life. When we talk about the fire of sin or the fire of the flesh, ultimately that is a fire too great to put out. We can maybe contain it in some sections, but it is like a, it's like a forest fire that actually cannot be stopped. The fire was too big to deal with on our own. And this is why in God's grace, uh, Jesus comes to the cross. You know, and if you want to follow the metaphor through, he, he actually deals with the, the flames of judgment and condemnation and guilt and shame and insecurity. All those things are the attitudes that unchecked sin in our life breeds. And Jesus says, these are big issues, but I'm going to put the fire out. I'm going to once and for all deal with it. That's the first stage of a fire. You have to put it out. The second, though, is how you deal with the house fire. And I can tell you in my own home, after the fire was put out, it was un- almost, almost unlivable for a week. It stunk so bad in there. And so we had to have, like, ServPro come out, and they cleaned up stuff. And then, you know, insurance then gives you money, and you rebuild your kitchen and portion of the rug in the living room that you burn. That's another story. But eventually what happens is, is the second stage is after the house is caught on fire, and the flames are put out, we don't just move right back into the home. The effects of the fire are massive. And this idea of effects, it's a big theme in the New Testament. You know, the, Like the wind, the effects of the Spirit are evident in our lives. You don't see the wind, but it moves the leaves. Same idea here. For a season, the house is unlivable. That's why we have insurance. After the flames are put out, somebody has to deal with its effects. Structural damage, unbearable odors, loss of contents. This is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying even though Jesus permanently deals with the fire of the flesh... He, he, he addresses that on the cross. His death and his resurrection put the fire out. Afterwards, we will spend the rest of our days sorting out the effects that sin has had on our lives. That's the truth of it. You know, and you, if you need an example of this, uh, let's just say for 20 years pre-Jesus, you treated somebody very poorly. And then you come to Jesus and you recognize how poorly you've treated somebody. That doesn't go away. That's an effect of the fire, Right? But you've been forgiven enough now to begin laboring in a way to prayerfully see redemption in that fire, to rebuild that section of your life. This is the balance he strikes here. This is what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because if you don't, while the house of your heart, if you're in Jesus, the house of your heart will never fully be on fire again. It cannot be burned down again. But I'll tell you, the effects of the fire can make your life the kind of place you don't want to live in anymore. Because things like shame and guilt and fear and anxiety, they begin to creep back into your life. They begin to move back into your heart, and they become the driving things in your life again. No longer is it truth and grace and freedom. It's shame and guilt and insecurity and fear, anxiety. That's what we want to stay away from. That's what Jesus put out. So this is where disciplining your life to pursue Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit play a significant role in our sanctification, in our growth in Christ. If you want joy in your life, I mean, just think of the logical connection. We, we should want to fight the flames of sin. There is a great joy in living in the presence of God. There is also a great pain when we walk away from that. If you want to stand firm through the trials and challenges of life, 
If you want to grow in your love for Jesus, you must make it a point to deeply understand the power of God's Holy Spirit in heaven. Because he enables your ability to put the the flesh to death on earth. And Jesus himself says this in multiple places. You're likely to be overcome by the fire itself. uh, Not by the fire itself, but by the lingering effects of the fire. There's this cause and effect that the Holy Spirit has in our lives when we're resting in him and dwelling in him. Remember, in all things, right, no matter what we're talking about, a good theology of the gospel says Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. So when we read a passage like this, Paul is not just saying, do it all in your own strength. There is no such thing of that. Thus, don't put the confidence, don't put your own confidence in yourself here. It's like another way of describing the vine and the branch. The branch grows and has life, but it is fueled uh, by the vine. The vine is what sustains life. That's a great teaching Jesus gives us himself to explain how we remain vibrant in him. Let me give you an example of this when it comes to this, this idea of uh, putting to death the flesh and, and growing in confidence in the Holy Spirit. Uh, for many of us who come to Jesus, we do come to him with significant hurts and failures in our past. And for many of us, as we are in Jesus, we still have these things coming up, the effects of the fire. Like if you struggle with insecurity your whole life, it is likely, it, it's possible, but it's not, it's not likely that that will just be dealt with in two days. There might be a work the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life. And so we come to him carrying things like past guilt and shame, or you can fill in the blanks at the end of past there. Uh, Maybe it's because of the way we treated people. Uh, Maybe it's the the issues we've had with friends or family or spouses. Uh, Maybe it's because we can look back in our lives and we've realized there were lengthy seasons of it where we were, we we lacked self-control or we were living, you know, under the rainy clouds of life. There was no joy. It was all blue and sadness. Maybe past situations have caused you to be ruled by fear or anxiety or self-doubt and worry. On the other side of the fence, this is just as common in our culture today. Maybe you're here saying, like, none of that even makes sense to me. But maybe you were burned up by the pride of arrogance, uh, the, the excuse me, the, uh, the fire of pride and arrogance. Maybe those kinds of things lit you up. Like, you just, you were what Paul is saying here. You, you're so confident in yourself that you actually, were, you, you saw yourself as like a little god and didn't even need God. The effects of the fire are going to be different for every one of us, but the way we deal with them will will never be. So that's why it's important to know, ultimately it's dealt with, the fire of sin is put out by Jesus, but then we are commanded actively to engage in the cleanup. And that might be a good way to, to, to analogize this in your own life. Don't take the onus of redeeming yourself. You can't. That That burden is just too much for you. But joyfully labor in the cleanup act. Joyfully get to know God more deeply. Pursue Him in Scripture. Pursue Him in community pursue him as you bless others in the name of christ engage in that with great joy and watch god fill you up with joy this process is what we call sanctification in the christian faith and when it comes to growing as a disciple the truths of salvation and sanctification are inseparable they are commonly separated today but in scripture they are inseparable meaning we can in part live in one of the other, we can essentially get moral and sanctification and forget grace, the grace of salvation, and then you become a Pharisee. Or we can get really rooted in the free grace concept, which is a totally biblical idea. Jesus dies for us and expects nothing. He loves us for who we are and forget sanctification. And then we, as Hebrews says, we yet crucify the Son of God again and again. It's like we, we take the great gift and take it for granted. Unfortunately, today, there, there are popular sentiments in both branches of Christianity that are content with preaching to these extremes. There's one side of discipleship, the one side of discipleship that says, you know, Jesus uh, loves you as you are. And that's like the end of the sermon every week. And that is so true. I'm not disputing that. He does love you as you are. But the other half of the sermon is always uh, that God also loves you enough to not leave you that way. 
He intends to transform you into the image of his son. That's one of the ways that God loves us. So you see, when it comes to putting your confidence in the spirit in your own life, your salvation and your sanctification, they really stand as a corroborating evidence for the other. Each one validates the other. The redemption that Jesus has applied to your life should fuel your sanctification, your desire to grow in him in imperfect and in broken ways. And your desire to grow in Jesus should never be disconnected from the fact that you only grow in Jesus because God is a good God who has invited you into a relationship with him. He is the driving impetus in your desire. Yet we should have desire. So one of the clearest marks that Jesus has put the fire of sin out in your life is that you know it's not, I guess I want to say this pretty clearly. I don't think, I'm confident Paul isn't saying here that we no longer struggle with the desires of sin whether they are moral, emotional, or spiritual, or a combination of the three. The mark of one who is in Jesus is that when they come, you desire to fight them, you can sense them, and you want to press into Jesus to overcome them. Paul teaches us this in other places, that in Ephesians, you might remember we studied that book in its entirety, after salvation, uh, after we come to Jesus, there now exists in us these two people. He refers to us as an old man and a new man. And the old man still wrestles with the distortion of sin. The old man comes to the table bringing what you once were. And the new man who is now in Jesus comes to the table reminding you of what you should be. And I'm telling you, when those two people sit at the table, sparks fly. Because the old guy, like I've shared with you my, my desire to like road rage, the old guy is like, ram that guy in front of you. And the new man is like, no, that's so bad. You should never do that. Right? That's the struggle. That's the tension. And every one of us, like, we've got those tensions. If you think about your life, there are things in you that, that are, that there's a tension there. And so the old man and new man are constantly warring with each other. But what I'm saying by warring is that the new man has already won. That's the beauty of this, is that the new you has already won. Because that's what Paul tells us here. That's what Jesus tells us. So I guess what I want to say here is that the mark of sanctification, the mark of growing in Jesus, is not that you never struggle. It's that there is evidence of the collision in your life on a regular basis. I'm saying if there's never any fight in you when the flames of the flesh arise, then there is potential cause for great concern that something might be off. If there's never an incident in your life where you sense, man, I need to be more like Jesus in this area, or I need to sense grace from Jesus in this area, th- th- there might be a good sign that you, there that you are trusting in something other than God's spirit. And in that case, it is likely our self-confidence. And if you need to see the, the unlitigated effects of that, all you have to do is look at Paul's life. When he functions in his own confidence, he is, is he's no less a brilliant man. He is no less a driven man. He is no less a person who loves God. He just... In his paradigm, it was a different way of loving him, but it ended up in him doing some pretty crazy things like murdering Christians, right? So with all this in mind, I want to briefly look. Here's how we'll start to wrap up. Uh, I want to give us a quick roadmap for how we can put uh, the flesh to death in our own lives by the power of the Spirit. I'm going to be brief here, but by brief, I mean they'll be behind me. Write them down. Take pictures of them. Call us this week if you have questions. Sort them out in your community group. I want you to take these ideas and think through them as the week goes on, okay? The first is this. How do you overcome the flesh? I would say that you need to know what your idols are. You begin by this. Uh, And we speak about the theology of idols a lot in here. It's important. An idol is simply something that calls you to trade a truth that God gives you about your life for a lie. That's, That's a very common and simple way of defining an idol. It's when something seeks to tell you that you, it's, it's a, it's a flat out lie to be something or to cause you to be something or to ask you to be something that is a contrarian idea to God's truth. And when it comes to idols, we all have them. 
And so knowing them is a huge thing. By knowing them, I mean we're at a place in lives where we, we sort of do know our, our weaknesses, but we don't dis- disconnect those weaknesses from the strength of God. And some of the big ones in the Bible are approval, uh, comfort, control, vanity, lust and pride. If approval is your idol, then what that means is you will seek the affection and favor of people around you, oftentimes at the expense of God. Uh, if comfort is your idol, you will give up the... What, this is actually a, a phrase that God put on my heart a month ago. And it's one I want to, in our next series, which I'll get to in a few weeks, at least introducing it, um, I'm really toying with this idea of emotional health. And God keeps bringing this, this statement back to me that discomfort is growth. Discomfort is growth. Meaning the more I'm challenged to be like Jesus, it gets uncomfortable. But that's like a fuel for me to be like Jesus. And so if we see comfort above all else, then we start getting comfortable. And we might even miss the great journey of what it means to follow Jesus. Control and vanity, all these things affect our lives. So as disciples, it's important to know and be honest with yourself and the people who are in your life, in your church family, about what you struggle with. Don't go that alone. Know it and don't go it alone. Identify your idol. This is a follow-up this week. If you are saying, I don't even know what this means in my life, notate that on a card and we'll follow up with you this week. We want to help you figure that out. Secondly, I would say, if you know your idol, like if you're already, like maybe you're in, you're in uh, Idol Theology 201, not 101, you must be prepared to fight against your idols when they call you to worship them. You have to know if control is your thing or comfort is your thing or approval is your thing, you're going to see the world through that lens. And so you have to be extra sensitive to that. And this is why we say on a regular basis here, uh, one of the marks of a disciple at Restoration is that they are a lover of God's truth in the Bible. That they're a person who who can rightly identify the lies in their lives, but, but they have a tool to then correct that. And that is that they can apply the truth of who God is to the lie in their life. The way you fight an idol in the power of the Spirit is by knowing truth. It's a simple formula, one that requires some investment on our part, though. So, for example, you need truth to combat the lie. So if, God, if somebody says to you, you're worthless, or mean, you have no meaning in life, there's a truth in Scripture that corrects that. And that is that that's not what Jesus thinks about you. That can change the way you see. It, it lessens, it kind of puts the approval idol in its place and lets your, your true God be the one who drives your life. And I'll, I'll share this here. Uh, I'll put myself on the chopping block here just so that you know that I have idols. We all do. Uh, it's no secret that uh, in, in my personal wirings and my temperament, is, it's kind of driven like the old world analogy is like a type A. And so uh, this came out a lot on church, my church planning assessments. People would say things like, you know, you're wired to like move. Like, you, like if it was possible, you would not sleep. And that's really true. I wouldn't. But I've realized I have to sleep. Otherwise, nothing I say here will make sense on a Sunday, right? So uh, that's a trait that was brought out in people, from people earlier in my days. And on the surface level, that is a strength. In fact, I say this a lot here. Our idols are often our strengths. They're, it's like there are strengths gone awry, though. So we're, we're wise to know that the way God has wired you, who he's made you, your greatest strengths can often be our, your greatest weaknesses uh, if they are left unchecked, if the, if the confidence is in, in the self and no longer in the power of the spirit. And so, for example, the, the type A folks in life, when, they are un, when they're unchecked, uh, the idol of control and order tends to, to surface. What can tend to happen is, is you, you want to be in control of everything. And you can't be in control of everything because control creates comfort. And then you start to feel uncomfortable when life gets out of control. But I'm telling you, in God's kingdom and in his movements, oftentimes um, being out of control in a healthy sense is what matters. There's a movement of God that begins to evidence his, his workings that is beyond your control. God starts doing things in places you, you, that you realize like how detrimental it is to try to limit him in those areas. And that's really what idol worship is. No matter what your strength is, it's trusting in the strength above Jesus hoping it will fulfill you like Jesus. And that's the lie. Every idol has a lie. 
it, that can be exposed through it. The idol of control, I've said this before, is that, honestly, what are we in control of? Some things, but most things we're not in control of. We, we have no way to predict or manipulate every circumstance in our lives for the next five minutes, let alone for the next 50 years. It's a great lie. So if you trust in that, you'll go crazy. But if you trust in Jesus, you'll find joy. None of us have the ability to, nor do our idols have the ability to fulfill the promises they make to us. That is the truth. So knowing your idol and fighting your idol is really about knowing God's truth so well that you can fight against the false promise of an idol. Because it is attempting to, to promise you something it cannot deliver on. And it will ultimately rob you of your identity as a child of God. And it will diminish your ability to be a disciple of Jesus. Lastly, and logically, if you know your idol and are working to, uh, to fight against your idol, you, you have accountability for that in truth, then all I want to say is what Paul has already said. You have to fight hard to trust Jesus through the whole process. <laughs> so it sounds really good to say we can do this and we can do this. But at the end of the day, ultimately, when you get frustrated in both of those areas, when you know your idol and try to fight it and you lose, this is where what I'm about to say now really matters. You have to trust Jesus through the process. He's your greatest advocate. He's your greatest fighter in the battle. In other words, fight hard to doubt your doubt. When it comes to your faith, when it comes to your life, when it comes to growing in Jesus, in God's grace, train your heart and mind to always give the benefit of the doubt to Jesus, to rest in him as you do this, to know that even when you know this stuff, you then have to ask God through the power of his Son and his Holy Spirit to make these realities in your life. And in that way, you'll find balance between God being the ultimate authority for who he wants you to be and you engaging in the cleanup process, but never owning it. If you own it, you will drive yourself mad. Jesus deserves that benefit. He deserves that place in our lives, and he's never failed us in that life. Believe me, I say it again. God uh, and Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, the three of them want you to be more like them than you and I want to be like them. And there's a beauty in that, that they are advocating for us, even in places where we don't even know what we've got to advocate about. Maybe some of us are clear about where we're at, but there are places where maybe we are not. I promise you, there is no lack of clarity on behalf of the three. They love us and want to bring clarity there. And so how can you know if you're fighting well? How can you know if you're, if you're putting confidence in, your, uh, in yourself or the Spirit? Well, I'll leave you with this. If you're all about the power of the Spirit and not disciplining your life to fight the flesh, then it will likely lead you to hyper-spiritualism. This is, a, this is actually the preferred religion of the world we live in today, and it's why I think we see so many abuses of it in the Christian faith too. Spirituality is like the thing right now, and that's really great. I, I gently condemn it all the time because in one sense we, I'm happy that people are thinking about the spiritual because it makes a place for them. Uh, in the Christian faith. It's, a, it's an entry point, obviously. But ambiguous spirituality is in because all you do in that, in that type of religion or faith is you make yourself a God in the paradigm. It's very easy to be spiritual because the God in that paradigm is you and you get to like write your own rules for how you follow God or whatever the version of that is in your life. And so this hyper-spiritualism, has a, it, has, it has a place, meaning it's in the church, but it doesn't actually have a, a healthy place in the church. There are times when people will read these types of teachings and they will completely disengage themselves from the process. They will, they will not do any of the things that God has asked us to do in order to, to grow in him. And oftentimes what this does is it creates a very abstract spirituality. It, you know, we rely on the spirit without any effort on our part. And what that creates is a, is a person who is always searching to know Jesus better, but seldom arrives at that place. It's one of the the more common counseling issues I deal with. It's people are deeply looking, but just don't really want to find. (laughs) 
Because oftentimes finding means discomfort. Like, let's be honest. Like, when God really explains to you what he expects of you for your, with your time, that discomforts. And so for some people, it's convenient. So what I would say is you want to pursue this, but you want to make sure that your pursual actually shapes your life at some point. And that's the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you're all about the fighting part. Like, you're, you, you're still on the Pauline side of the spectrum. You're all about the confidence in self, not the power of the Spirit. You can guarantee a failure of a different kind. Because that just tends to breed an arrogance, a moralism or a legalism. It corroborates Paul's statement, my favorite word in the whole book. When he talks about who he was in, in, in religion in that day, he goes on and he says, faultless. That's how he describes himself. But the difference is he's using those words now. They're subordinated to the reality of who Jesus is. He's not saying, look at me, I'm faultless. He was saying, I once thought I was faultless. And then I realized there's only one faultless person ever. And his name is Christ. All those things change dramatically. Left unchecked, without the Spirit in our lives, we will think we are the Holy Spirit. And that creates a problem. We can't put to, flesh, uh, put to death the flesh in our own lives if we value the flesh. And we can't do it in our own strength because we're not strong enough. You can't ultimately put the fire out. You can deal with its effects to a degree, but you can't put it out. That's why Paul tells us, put your confidence in the Spirit, not self. If you put your confidence in self, you'll likely can't claim small victories when you, have, when you have them in areas. And you will have them. But what those victories will do, as opposed to driving you into a deeper love for Jesus, they will drive you into a greater love for yourself. And that's where the, the paradigm breaks down. So as we end this morning, I want to leave you with this verse. You know, as a church, I want us to follow Paul's example of fighting and straining. As, as disciples, I want us to press on and grow and labor for the cause of Christ. I introduced three priorities for us over these past two weeks that we want to bring some practical application to here. We want to trust in God for his goodness, but, but also labor faithfully. No matter where you find yourself in these two spaces or in between them, be encouraged by what Paul says. This is what I love about the scripture. This is not a guy writing about something. This is a guy writing about something that God did in him. That is a completely different thing. He is speaking from a, a, a knowledge of God that shaped an experiential change in his life. So no matter where you find yourself, be encouraged that a guy named Paul, who made a ton of mistakes in his life, he said something to us very important in the first chapter of Philippians. Whole sermon on it, but I'll restate the verse today. When you think of this concept and where we're going, growing in Christ, he says in Philippians 1.6, another word, be confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why does that matter? I'll tell you why. There are days when you will not fight. There are days when you know you should fight and you won't. There are days when you fight hard and you're boxing air. You can't hit anything. There are days when you will fight hard and fall and fail. You will strain and, and break your back. That'll happen. You have to know, though... Uh, when this happens, when, when the fight overtakes you, you cannot be discouraged. You might get discouraged, but you need to let truth combat the lie. Listen for the still and quiet voice of your God. And in some senses, he's less still and less quiet. Sometimes he's pretty vivacious. He's going to whisper in your ear or tell you or remind you that you are not alone. You have a network of people, both in this body and your community groups, and from the throne of heaven who are here for you. Remember that even though you are called to run this race of a disciple, the finish line has already been crossed. That's the beauty of this. Jesus ran the race and broke the tape. We just have to follow in the power and the presence of his, his, his coattails and get there. And we are given his advocacy through the whole way. So this morning, ask yourself this as we close. Are you putting the flesh to death by the power of the Holy Spirit? 
as we move into response time, ask yourself this. What is Jesus saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Maybe you see some of the theology behind those two questions we ask each week. What does the Spirit of God put on you today? And what will you do in his power as you leave this place? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, um, thank you for your, your son. Thank you for Paul, who is also your son in a different way. And, and for those of us here today, he is our brother in Jesus. It's easy to read about these people in the Bible and disconnect ourselves from them. But the truth is that uh, one day, when we are all together in heaven, we will be with this guy. He will be in our presence, and our presence will be with his. And so I pray, Lord, that the humanity of what we have studied today really shines through. That we would never forget, God, um, that the faith is a race that many men and women have run for millennia prior to us and will run until your return. We ask, God, that what we have discussed today may not be you know, relegated to the mental zone of ideal in our lives, but may it bring about reality. May we know that there is a great confidence we have in this life. And if we ultimately trust in you, if we put our all in you, you will be to us and do things in us and for us and through us that are unrivaled. You will change the world through us. And that is our prayer. You'll change us and those around us. So we ask today, God, that the work you've began in us, may it be completed and may we have confidence in you. And as we approach this time of meditation and reflection, I pray that would be the driving factor. Let us rest before you now, know who you are and live our lives in light of that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.